All right, well, we're going to switch gears uh, just a little bit this morning. For the last month or so, we've been looking at two stories uh, regarding the miraculous catch that Jesus provided for his disciples, one of those from Luke chapter 5 and the other in John 21. And so we've been talking about this idea of what it means to be fishers of men and that Jesus would do that for us, that he would fill our nets. And of course, that begs the question, what are the nets? If we're called into partnership with Jesus, he fills the nets, but we have to cast them. And so we've been talking about, thinking about, studying together uh, those stories and what they speak to us symbolically and spiritually about casting our nets and inviting Jesus to fill them. Um, oh, by the way, yes, thank you. Kids uh, 12 and under for the older class are dismissed. If you guys want to head out for your class, that is beginning now. So uh, I want to take you this morning to another passage of Scripture, and we're going to talk about some things that are connected and related to what we've been studying together the last month. Uh, but this is really the beginning of a new message series for the next uh, six weeks or so of Lent leading up to Good Friday and Easter, which happen in mid-April. Um, many of you may know that Lent is a, a season of 40 days, not including Sundays. It's a countdown, if you will, to uh, Good Friday when we commemorate the death of Jesus on the cross and, of course, Resurrection Sunday uh, shortly thereafter when we commemorate his resurrection from the grave. So this season of Lent, this 40-day period um, leading up to Good Friday is often thought of as a, a time of reflection, and it's thought of as a, a time, an opportunity for us to identify with Jesus in his journey toward the cross. So what I've chosen to do for these next six weeks is to focus with you on a passage of Scripture that comes right out of that experience that Jesus had with his disciples as he was journeying toward the cross. So we're going to spend some time um, in Matthew 16. And some of you are going to recognize parts of this. Maybe you've read it recently and it's all familiar to you, but um, there's a section a little bit later down in Matthew 16 that I've taught on many times. It happens to be one of my favorite stories, and that's because God spoke something very personal about it to me as I began uh, planting this church back in 2001. Um, so we'll come to that story again in just a few weeks. But we're going to begin with um, verse 1 of Matthew 16, and we're going to think together and study together about um, some of the things, some of the key principles that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples as he journeyed toward the cross. So bear in mind the context. This is near the end of Jesus' life, the last couple months of his ministry, and he's headed essentially toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him there. So if you'd stand with me, let's read and hear these words from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it must be because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, well, um, let me just ask you here uh, as we begin to pray with me. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me if you're willing and able to do that. Okay, so I'll say a phrase and then you repeat it after me and pray it with me in that way. God, I open my mind and heart to the truth of your word. And to the revelation of your purposes. For my life individually and for our church. As I study your word today, I welcome your Holy Spirit to teach me what you want me to know. And to show me what you want me to see. So that I can partner with you more effectively. To represent Jesus to the world around me. For I am an important member of the body of Christ Jesus on the earth. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let me ask you this morning, if you've ever seen what you might recognize and refer to as a sign of the times. A sign of the times. It's an interesting phrase, and one that we're going to dig into together because it lies right at the heart of this story that I've shared with you this morning from Matthew 16. Jesus refers to this idea, 
But he wasn't the first to refer to it, as you'll see when we dig in. Um, this is a concept that Scripture refers to in other places as well. And uh, we'll talk about that in due, in due time. But I want to just begin this morning by sharing with you an example of something that I consider to be a sign of the times. Now, we talked about this a little bit last Sunday, if you were here, so it's not brand new news for, for many of you. Uh, although if you weren't here, perhaps you haven't heard about this yet. But last weekend, on Saturday of last weekend, there was a 12-hour gathering in Orlando, Florida, called The Send. It was a huge conference uh, bringing together Christian leaders and uh, churches and mission organizations, including YWAM and several others, uh, bringing people together in a stadium in Orlando, Florida, and there, uh, there were about 60,000, roughly, people in attendance uh, at this large day-long conference. And you might wonder, well, what's the significance of this? Well, uh, for starters, it's not every day that 60,000 people gather in a stadium for 12 hours to worship Jesus and to hear from Christian leaders. I think that in itself is, is somewhat unusual. It's not it's not often that we hear about things like this happening. In fact, even when they do happen, they're not typically covered in the news. So, you know, you're not going uh, to find this on the front page of most newspapers or um, even on the web. You're going to have to look for it if you want to learn about it. But it did happen, and it happened for some significant reasons, and I believe God is in it, and that God is moving in a significant way, and that this experience, this this day-long gathering in Orlando is what we might call a sign of the times that we're living in. Now, I'll explain more about what I mean by that phrase as we go here, but let me just show you briefly a one-minute video that captures uh, sort of the results of what happened last Saturday at this gathering in Orlando. Take a quick look. I don't know if you uh, caught the statistic, but as a result of that gathering last Saturday, over 5,000 people committed themselves to international missions. In one day, 5,000 people made a commitment to go to the mission field, whether short-term or long-term. And there were several other commitments that were made as well uh, throughout the day. 
um, literally tens of thousands of people that committed themselves to a 40-day season of prayer and fasting for the gospel to advance on the face of the earth. And that 40 days began on Friday, if you're interested in participating. So I share this with you because to me, it's a significant reflection that God is moving in our nation. And God is moving by the Holy Spirit to, to bring us into a new season of awakening, a new season of harvest, a new season where, where people are turning back to God and receiving his grace over their lives. I'm excited about that, and I believe that, that though we don't see all of it unfolding yet, we're, we're on the doorstep. I, I take this gathering last Saturday as a sign of the times that we're living in, a sign of what God is doing on the earth. So let's turn then our attention to Matthew 16, where we find Jesus preparing the disciples for his journey to the cross and for their partnership in his mission to the world. And I want you to see some key insights from this story because it's really a, a rather remarkable uh, account of contrast, comparison and contrast between the way of the religious Pharisees and Sadducees and the way of Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself. Now let me warn you as we look at this scripture of passage that uh, it's, it's going to confront some things. Jesus in, in this passage of scripture is confronting the religious legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, uh, there's a book I've, I've been reading for the last week or so uh, that's based on this chapter of Scripture specifically called Ecclesia Rising. It's written by uh, a pastor and, and Christian teacher and intercessor named Dean Briggs, um, who for many years has worked with Lou Engel and is now on staff at uh, the International House of Prayer with Mike Bickle in Kansas City. And if you're a reader and you feel drawn into the depths of this scripture passage as I teach on it over the coming weeks, then I want to commend Dean's book to you. And quite honestly, I have to confess, I've borrowed the title of this message series for the next six weeks from his book, Ecclesia Rising. So we're going to talk about what it looks like for the church to rise up and take hold of the mission of Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples in this chapter of Scripture. So let's begin at Matthew 16, verse 1. You'll understand as we uh, unpack all this uh, what I'm describing. But let's just begin with verse 1. And I want you to see here uh, the comparison that Jesus begins to draw out between the way of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious elite of his day, and the way of Jesus himself. Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven is what they wanted. In other words, this was a test. They were looking for a sign that would somehow validate for them the identity and the ministry of Jesus. They were skeptics. They were doubters. They did not understand or believe that Jesus was 
the Messiah that they'd been awaiting for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So this story begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees calling for a a test. Come on, Jesus, prove yourself. Show us that you really are who you say you are. And bear in mind that as they're calling for this test, they're, they're not believing that Jesus can do it. They're not believing that he is who he says he is. They're not believing that he's sent from God. They're not believing that his ministry is legitimate. So the story begins with this conflict between Jesus and the religious legalism of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, what I want you to see here right out of the gate is that Jesus opposes religion that fails to understand him and opposes his ministry. Jesus opposes lifeless religion that fails to understand him and opposes his ministry. That's what this is about. You know, maybe you've seen uh, the old bumper stickers, right? There are two, two versions of this bumper sticker. I won't show them to you, but you can probably picture them because I'm sure you've seen them countless times on cars uh, in front of you as you're driving down the road. One uses the word tolerance, and the other uses the word coexist, right? And each one has connected to the letters of the word all these various religious symbols, The idea being that the best way of thinking, the best attitude to have regarding religion is that all religions are created equal and they're all good, right? I mean, you've probably heard it said, right? All, they're they're like paths up, you know, up the various sides of a mountain. They all lead to the same place. Do they? No. No, they don't. If that were true, Jesus would have no reason to confront the religious Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious leaders of his day. They were the religious elite. If there was nothing wrong with their religion, then there would have been no conflict with Jesus, no opposition. But Jesus opposes them and what they stand for because they refuse to recognize him. And they oppose his ministry. Now, let me just explain a little bit. Perhaps many of you are familiar with these groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who they were and what they represent, the kind of thinking and living uh, that was characteristic of them. But let me just briefly review that to remember with you who they were and what they stood for. Together, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, made up what was known as, at that time, the ruling council of Israel. It's called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70 religious leaders, mostly Sadducees, but some Pharisees. The Sadducees were typically in the majority, the Pharisees in the minority. And they made up this ruling council that would pass judgment upon the laws of the land in Israel, particularly in the absence of a king to do that. So this Sanhedrin rose to power in the years after the Jewish monarchy was done away with. There was no longer any king over Israel to make these kinds of decisions and decrees. 
So the Sanhedrin, particularly in the Roman Empire, took on the role of making judgments about what was right and what was wrong, what was legal and what was illegal. So it was really both a a spiritual body and a political body at the same, same time. Think of our Supreme Court with 70 members, and you have a little bit of the idea of what the Sanhedrin was about and what they were tasked with doing in the life of Israel. Now, of these two groups, the Sadducees were more aristocratic. They were the elite, the wealthy, the powerful Jewish leaders. This group tended to hold most of the 70 seats of the Sanhedrin, and in their role, um, they worked hard to keep peace with Rome, the Roman Empire. These were the overlords of Israel at this time in history when Jesus was alive. So Israel was under Roman leadership, and the Sanhedrin wanted to keep the peace with the Romans. So they would often um, interact with the Roman leaders. And for that reason, of course, they were often in conflict with the teachings of Jesus. These men were particularly self-sufficient. They were learned. They were leaders in their society. And uh, for the most part, they were highly respected, although some saw them as elitists and had an attitude against them for that reason. Now, in particular, The Sadducees had some very peculiar beliefs. They claimed to believe the Old Testament was God's word, and yet they denied certain things that the Pharisees believed. So there was some conflict even between these two groups, and Jesus talks about that at different times. The Sadducees denied any resurrection from the dead or afterlife. They denied the reality of angels and demons, and uh, they were very secular in their understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament. They were, uh, uh, they were in the majority, and yet they didn't o- always hold the power to make the decisions because the Pharisees, though in the minority, were more popular with the common people. So by way of comparison then with the Sadducees, the Pharisees were a smaller group, but they were not as elite. They were more like the common man. They were common businessmen who rose to religious leadership because of their education and their spirituality. This group uh, was smaller, and yet they controlled many of the decision-making processes of the Sanhedrin because of their popularity with the common people of Israel. This group, the Pharisees, did believe in a resurrection from the dead. They did believe in angels and demons. They tended to take the Old Testament more literally at face value, and yet... The problem with that was that they were particularly legalistic. And so we find on numerous occasions Jesus confronting them for their legalism. They believed, essentially, that to to earn favor with God, you had to strictly observe not just the Mosaic law, but all of the rules that had come from that over the course of uh, the history of Israel. And there was quite a long and lengthy list of rules to observe. So so there you have just a quick glimpse of these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think of them as the leaders of Israel during Jesus' life and ministry. But the biggest problem with both groups, aside from some doctrinal issues, the biggest problem with both both groups 
uh, aside from their legalism, was their opposition to Jesus. Their opposition to Jesus. So the problem wasn't just legalism. It was a corresponding mindset of religious and social elitism that led toward judgment of others who were different or had a different idea or a different attitude or a different set of uh, convictions and actions. These men saw themselves as better than others, and they often looked down at others in judgment who were not as spiritual as they were. And I think there's a fascinating point of connection here with the way that many people in the world around us view Christians today. Sadly, we are often perceived as being highly judgmental, which is exactly how the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day were viewed. So, let me contrast that now with the, the way of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus. See, what we find throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is this constant back and forth with these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they did not accept Jesus' identification as the promised Messiah, the one who was to come from God. They did not believe that he was the one that they were waiting for. And therefore, they didn't accept not, uh, his, his ministry or his mission. They lost sight of their own mission, I suggest, because Really, what the Old Testament was about from the very beginning is that God was setting apart a people for himself who would represent him to the world. It was missional. From the very beginning, it was meant to be missional. And yet the the Pharisees and the Sadducees had become so focused on their own righteousness, their own holiness, that they'd become judgmental toward the world rather than missional. So when Jesus says at the end of Matthew uh, 16 here, this passage we're, we're reading, the last few verses, when Jesus says that his disciples should avoid the yeast of the Pharisees, he's not talking, of course, about the kind of yeast needed to bake bread, as he makes clear in the dialogue. What he's talking about is the yeast of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What was it? What was it? The yeast that he was describing, symbolically, was the teaching and the mindset of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which was essentially religious, legalistic, and judgmental. What we might describe, in my opinion, as the hallmarks of a religious spirit, a religious spirit. The disciples of Jesus, by contrast, were common men who held no position of authority politically or religiously. They were simple down-to-earth people, most of them uneducated. And most importantly, Jesus wanted them to learn as they followed him that they should not be like the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. He wanted their hearts captivated by him. He wanted their lives dedicated to him. 
and he wanted to teach them the way of life in right relationship with God. So while the religious leaders of Jesus' day were skeptics about him, often critical and even condemning of his ministry, Jesus was teaching his disciples a different way, another way, a better way. What the Pharisees and Sadducees represented was exactly the opposite of what Jesus was looking for in his followers. So friends, there's, what I'm saying is that there's really a warning here. There's, a, there's an implicit warning in this story. Don't be like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't fall into their way of thinking. Don't let your religion become lifeless and legalistic and judgmental. Contrary to the popular tolerance idea, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, not all religions are created equal because religions can be religious and legalistic. So from the vantage point then of Jesus himself, it was quite possible for religion and religious leaders to miss the whole point. They did. The point was to recognize and relate to Jesus as the anointed one who was sent by God himself. They missed it. They missed the signs of the times. They missed what God was doing in that moment on the face of the earth. And because they missed it, their religion was lifeless. So let's dive a little deeper into this mindset that characterized the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I want you to think with me about the spirit of religion. I believe, actually, that there is a demonic power behind the spirit of religion, spirit not being capitalized. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about spirits of religion that can actually prevent people from recognizing the signs of the times and joining the mission of Jesus. A spirit of religion can actually prevent people from recognizing the signs of the times and joining the mission of Jesus. Let me give you uh, a little insight into what Jesus is describing here. Maybe you've heard the old sailor's warning. It goes like this in, in its modern version. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Right? That's essentially the modern version of what Jesus was quoting in verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 16. Look with me again at these verses. He, they're asking him for a sign, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus replies, when evening comes, you say... Well, it'll be fair weather for the sky's red. And in the morning, well, today it's going to be stormy because the sky's red and overcast, right? There it is. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. This is exactly what they're quoting. Jesus is saying, well, you guys know how to read the signs of the skies. But look at the end of verse 3, and you'll see the rebuke. It's subtle, but it's firm. Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, 
yet you cannot interpret the signs of the times. They missed it. They missed the signs of the times. They did not see what God was really doing on the earth in that moment. And therefore, they failed to participate in it and partner with it. So Jesus is confronting this mindset because he recognizes how devastating it is. He, recognizing, he recognizes that it's a path that goes nowhere. It's not purposeful. It's not fruitful. If we miss the signs of the times, if we miss what God is doing on the earth around us, we can't partner with him. We can't participate in it. So here's the rub. They're asking for a sign when they'd already had several and missed them. They're asking Jesus to do a little trick. They're asking Jesus to perform a little miracle just for their benefit so they can see that he really is who he says he is. And Jesus says, sorry guys, but you're part of a wicked and adulterous generation who has missed the signs of the times. The signs of the times were all around them. Who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing should have been evidence enough if they were paying close attention. The problem was they were looking for the wrong kind of sign. They wanted Jesus to do a miracle just for them to prove himself, but Jesus was the miracle. Jesus was the miracle. Everything about him was miraculous. Everything about him was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah who was to come. Let me give you a little analogy. It may be weak, but hopefully it'll give you the idea, right? I'm sure some of you have had this experience where you're driving down the road and you know where you're meant to be going, but then somehow you miss your exit. Anybody ever had this happen? <laughs> I've done this a bunch of times over the years. I'm willing to admit it. And um, usually it's because I'm distracted. Usually it's because I, like, you know, I can think of one occasion where I'm, I'm trying to go to Grand Rapids. I'm up on I-69, headed, you know, past DeWitt. And I know that I've got to get off on the exit to get from I-69 to I-96. But I think, well, I need to get around this truck in front of me. He's going too slow. So you pull out into the left lane, right? the passing lane, to go around the truck, and sure enough, you get up and around the truck, and then you realize, oh, the exit to I-96 was right there on the other side of the truck. And then you've got to drive all the way down, you know, to uh, Potterville to turn around. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, 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 right, I know. I'm just, I offer, the, I, I offer you that as an example of, you know, missing the mark, missing the sign, missing the turn, and suddenly coming to the awareness that you're off track, you're not where you wanted to be or not where you meant to be. If you miss the sign to your exit, you're going to end up in the wrong place. It's a simple illustration of what Jesus is describing as the fundamental problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were missing the signs, and they ended up then 
in a lifeless religion. Now, Jesus does say, to be honest and fair, he does say, I'll give you one sign. You know what it is? The sign of Jonah. Raise your hand if you know what the sign of Jonah is. Okay, good, a number of you. Just to refresh your memory and for the sake of those who didn't raise their hand, this is a common interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not the first time that this issue has come up. In fact, Jesus has referred previously, back in Matthew chapter 12, to the sign of Jonah. And on that occasion, he actually explained to his disciples specifically and explicitly what he meant by that. So if you turn back with me to Matthew 12, 40, you'll find this description from the mouth of Jesus about the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. What did he mean by that? Well, here it is, Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah was yet to come. It was to be the sign of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And essentially what he's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees is, if you've missed everything else about me, maybe you'll catch on when this happens. Maybe you'll figure it out when I'm put to death and then three days later I rise from the dead. That's the ultimate sign of the times. That's the ultimate sign of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But frankly, they still didn't get it. They continued to miss the signs. They continued to oppose the identity and the ministry of Jesus. In fact, what's remarkable to me as I think about their example is what Jesus said on another occasion and there were lots of back-and-forth interactions with these religious leaders. One that stands out to me and that I think is most significant is found in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Listen to this. this is, these are Jesus' words directly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says to them on this occasion, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, of course, he's talking about the Old Testament not the New Testament, it hadn't been written yet. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in terms of, in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, Jesus says, that testify about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. So wrap your head around this, okay? It's, it's almost hard to believe. Jesus is talking about people who diligently study the Bible. Diligently. They give lots of time to studying the Bible, and yet they still miss what it's all about. That's a little scary, isn't it? That's a little humbling. Like, Lord, man, as I open the Word, I don't want to miss it. Help me to see. Help me to understand. If you're not praying that every time you open the Bible, beware. Because reading the Bible in itself does not always lead you to the truth. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are a perfect example of that reality. They studied the Bible diligently, and yet they missed the fact that it was all about Jesus. 
And here's the irony, right? This is the height of irony. These guys studied the Bible diligently, giving hours of their time and energy to the study of God's Word, and they miss what it's all about. And yet many of those who know what it's all about and know Jesus hardly spend any time studying the Bible. That's a problem, don't you think? I'm not saying that the Bible will lead you astray. What I'm saying is, when you study it, you have to ask God to give you the right understanding of it so that you can see what he wants you to see and know what he wants you to know. The spirit of religion can blind you to those truths. So much like the Jewish leaders then, people in our own day and age can be very religious and yet fail to see what God is doing and participate in it. We can fail to know Jesus as God's anointed son, fail to partner with him in his ministry and mission. That's what he was calling forth in his disciples. By setting them in opposition to the way of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and by contrasting what he wanted from them with what he saw in the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus was saying, my mission and ministry is very different from the religion that's acceptable and respectable around you. So let me finish now with one last insight here. Our time is about up, but I want to I take this home by just sharing with you a point of reference that I think is really helpful to me and insightful regarding this idea of understanding the signs of the times. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the reputation of the sons of Issachar. Anybody know about the sons of Issachar, who they are and what they were famous for? I'm seeing fewer hands, a couple, but not very many. Thank you. Here's where I want to close with you this morning. Because I think this is the, the idea that Jesus had in mind. As he's confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's calling forth something different in his disciples, I think this is what Jesus had in mind. Like the famous sons of Issachar, Jesus wants his disciples, his followers, to understand the signs of the times so that we'll know what to do as we follow and serve him. This is the point of application here. The point of application is not just that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees and Sadducees. The point of application with all this is that we would see what God wants us to see, understand the signs of the times that we're living in, recognize what God is doing, and then partner with him in it. This is critical. If you want to follow and serve Jesus effectively, you have to be able to see and understand the signs of the times. For the last several months, I've been captivated by this idea of the sons of Issachar. And I've been praying, Lord, could I be like one of them? Would you make me like the sons of Issachar? Lord, would you give me eyes to see the signs of the times so that I'll know what to do? And in light of my recent fascination with this concept, what's particularly interesting is that Jesus references this idea here in Matthew 16. 
I wasn't thinking about that or remembering that until I was drawn back to this chapter earlier this week and decided to preach into it. So listen again now to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 3. At the end of verse 3, he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now listen to the words describing what was particularly commendable about the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. Let me give you the context. This is a list in 1 Chronicles of the men from each tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes, who were loyal to David before David became king. So David and Saul were kind of uh, back and forth. Saul was trying to get rid of David because Saul knew that David was anointed to take his place. And Saul was literally trying to hunt David down and having, have him killed so that Saul could retain his own power as king of Israel. But David was the Lord's anointed one. And for those who understood the signs of the times, their loyalty lay with David, not with Saul. Right? Because they knew that David was the Lord's chosen, the Lord's anointed to become king of Israel. So there's a list then that's given in 1 Chronicles 12 of the people from each of the 12 tribes who were loyal to David before David became king. And here's what's said about the sons of Issachar. From Issachar, there were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command who understood the signs of the times. And because they understood the signs of the times, they knew what Israel should do. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that description. It's just one sentence. It's just one simple little verse, and yet it's profound what's being described here regarding this group of men from the tribe of Issachar. Who were these guys, and, and why were they called out and commended in such a way? They were men who joined the army of King David, recognizing that God's hand was upon him before he officially became king of Israel. They were men who saw and understood the signs of the times they were living in, and they knew what to do because they understood what God was doing. And Jesus is now saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you've failed to understand the signs of the times. You've missed it. Unlike the sons of Issachar, you've missed the signs of the times. So the moral of the story is, don't ask for a new sign. Recognize the signs that God has already given Ask him to help you understand them. Here's a little prayer, a little prayer that you could begin to pray as I did just a couple of months ago. Lord, I want to understand the times that I'm living in. I want to understand the signs of what you're doing on the earth and in this nation of ours. I want to see clearly so that I'll know what to do, both as an individual follower of Jesus and as a leader in the church. 
begin to pray that God would give you that vision, like the sons of Issachar, clarity of understanding, revelation of God's plans and purposes at work in the earth. Begin to pray specifically that God would help you understand the signs of the times that we're living in so that you'll know what to do with that understanding. See, this isn't just about intellectual understanding. This is about action. This is about knowing what to do because you have the right understanding. And let me tell you, right, God is calling the church into a season where we know what to do with what we've been given. We know how to partner with the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Jesus. We know what we're called to. We know who we are and what God wants us to do to represent him in the world around us. It's no good to just have lots of intellectual understanding if you're not willing to translate that into action. The sons of Issachar had both. They understood the signs of the times and then they knew what to do with that understanding, how to live it out, how to act on it. That's what Jesus was evoking from his disciples. And that's why he wanted them to see the empty, lifeless religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees by way of contrast. So what are the signs of the times we're living in? Well, there are lots of ways we could answer that question, and that would take us a lot more time than I have this morning. We'll come back to it over the weeks to come. I think that's enough for now. Let's pray. 